2: It's time for an All-Star Week edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, host, sports manager at Cleveland.com, and joining me as he does every week is Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. How are you doing, Terry?
0: I am well, David.
2: Good. You know, um, back in the day when uh, I used to see a lot of different newspapers around the country, every... Every time of year, this at this time of year, every year, I think about an old page in the Palm Beach Post they did in July about 25 years ago. The Palm Beach Post was a great sports section back in the day, and, and I think on the Wednesday of All-Star Game Week, they put out a blank front page, and it said, today is the most boring day in sports, yeah. <laughs> and it had nothing on it. But we got a lot to talk about today, including you have an upcoming uh, appearance at a library in Vermilion. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? It's July 25th at 6 p.m. Right. at the Ritter Library, I believe, right?
0: In Vermilion. And yes, that's uh, continuing the, the the great library tour where you could get in for free. And if you're going to like it, you get a refund. And so that was, <laughs> it's, a, it's an old joke, but still... True. And we have a good time where people come out, I give a little talk, we take questions and I sign books and and just kind of meet people. And also a lot of times what those things do is give me an idea about things to write about, uh, just like emails. I probably answer about half the emails I get. Um, so I have some people write me almost every day and that's that's just a, it's, a, it's a little much and uh but i am grateful uh i've always been grateful for the readers and i really mean that because uh i it's a line i came up with decades ago without you there's no us you being the people that read whether it's online or in print and uh you're the reason we are here and we have a job and also just in this environment too a difficult media one um more than ever i appreciate them and and the library talks is a way to to let people know that and Um, it's a, it's a lot of fun.
2: Well, and you know how it is, Terry, especially after COVID, everybody kind of bunkered in and everything Mm -hmm. was on video and zoom and there's no substitute for getting out and talking sports with real sports fans. It really, you're right. It gives you a completely different view of what the fans are thinking, things they're interested in, and it's, you can't replace it. I tried to do
0: one of those on zoom. And after that, I just said, forget it. It was just too weird. Um, all the little boxes and you see people picking their nose and doing all kinds of things. And <laughs> probably I felt like picking my nose too at the same time. I, and, you know, it, it just, it just was too strange because we, we do build off of the, the audience and uh, my friends that are especially uh, all preachers and, and pastors and priests, but uh, especially those in the inner city talk about, uh, kind of these change back and forth. You know, if you if you listen to some uh, African-American churches, it's almost, a, it's almost a cadence, you know. Like my pastor once in a while, Bishop Joey Johnson, I say, stop me, stop me when I'm lying. And, you know, that makes people <laughs> laugh. Or, you know, he tries to make an important point and stares, stairs and he'll say, I'm searching for an amen out there. Is anybody there? And it's just a lot of fun. And that has um, some of that in the, uh, when I do the library talks, just kind of like, is that, Subject going? Are we on to anything? And then suddenly, I, I would say, just like the Holy Spirit, where it leads in a whole other direction. So
2: um,
0: these are fun. Come on out. You can't go wrong because you don't have to pay.
2: All right. And again, it's July 25th at 6 p.m. in Vermilion at the Ritter Library. So, all right, Terry, going back to the blank page story, we, we got a lot to talk about, even though it's kind of a slow sports week. Uh, we can get into the Guardians here. The Cavs had Summer League going on. Uh, we're going to Brown's training camp. Boy, it's coming up a week from Saturday, which is hard mm-hmm. to believe. And then uh, we got some interesting uh, book fodder at the end. So uh, why don't we start with the Guardians, 45 and 45. They're in first place by half a game over the Twins. And this is a good time to take inventory. Terry, the, the Guardians at the break, how you feeling about them? And, and kind of what do you see coming up?
0: I feel about them, about how they've been playing. It's like, I can't quite figure out what's going on. I mean, they're not terrible. They're certainly not good. Um, it's almost like they refuse to get really hot to take it over. And just when it looks like the bottom's going to fall out, the foundation that they have, and they have a good foundation, holds. And then they start to come back up again. And this, you know, you're looking at, so they played 90 games, which means you have 72 left. Um, to, They're not going to come in with 92 wins anymore. I don't believe that be it because of, you're going to have Logan Allen in the rotation. So you'll have three starting rookie pitchers, Allen, Tanner Bybee and Gavin Williams and a rookie catcher as uh, I asked Terry Francona about that over the weekend and he just said that is a big ask and he did he still meant they could win the division but just how they're trying to do it this year Uh, and I think none of the the three rookie pitchers I believe Logan Allen threw 132 innings and Bybee threw like 123 and Williams you know they, they basically all threw around 120 130 innings last year um, and they didn't well they pitched a lot in college they didn't they didn't throw sort of that many so that's going to be the big thing and of course with the eye on what's going to happen to beaver
2: but David what do you think is going on with beaver this is this is really strange to me well why don't we get into that Terry I You've been talking about this for a couple of weeks and writing about it. We actually got a question from a listener about this. This is from Tom Hearn from Lexington, Kentucky, by way of Chagrin Falls. And he says Hi, Terry. I enjoy your columns in the podcast, I read and listen to all of them. Thanks for that. We appreciate it, Tom. My question is this. It appears that Shane Bieber has something wrong with him. This is the second game in a row where he pitched four innings like the old Shane. When he reaches the fifth, he suddenly looks lost. Yesterday, he could only get two outs while he allowed four runs. You mentioned his agent was looking to make a big score with him in free agency. I don't see any team paying a large amount of money for him at the moment. Also, who would trade for him right now? I believe the Guardian should have traded him in the spring. I'm afraid they have missed their opportunity. What do you think? Uh, thanks for that. Email, Tom. Uh, a lot there to unpack, Terry. What do, you, what do you think?
0: Well, as for trading in the sc- – swing, oh, how about trying to finish the sentence? As for trading them in the spring, I would have had a hard time trading a guy just through 200 innings and ERA at 2.98 and look strong all year. I just – and I won the division. I'm talking about as in running the Indian or the, the Guardians. I won the division. I got this ace pitcher. And I think I could win it again. I would have a tough time with two years to go. Now, you tell me come July that his ERA is climbing up towards four and especially his last um, I think his last seven starts now are when the ERA in that period is like five. Of course, you wish you would have done it back then. Now, that said, David, do you think anybody wants him?
2: I don't know Terry. I mean the, the more time that goes along and if you if you're a GM in the major leagues you know how good the guardians are at timing this stuff, right? And you look at the mileage and the and the, the wear that's on that arm already. I mean, you mentioned 200 innings. It was 200 innings exactly mm-hmm. last season. He's already got 117 this season. Um, you know, in 2021 he pitched 96 and even in the covid year 77 like and then you go back to 2019, 214 innings. Mm-hmm. 2018, 114. It's so like he's getting up to where he's going to be close to, you know, 200, 400, 800 innings. It's it's a lot. And, um, and the stamina, fans are seeing it. I think the team is seeing it. And the people who are going to be trading with the Guardians are seeing it. Like he just doesn't have his best stuff after two times through the order. Right? He
0: was one of the best I'd seen. and I got this from uh, Carl Wilson, the pitching coach, a while ago, at fixing himself in the middle of an inning. You know, he would get into trouble, and I've seen other veteran pitchers do it. Earl Hirscheyer would do it. Dennis Martinez, um, Kluber. You know, when when the the good ones are able to do that, and they'll minimize the damage. But now it's like he turns into batting practice, and so it's odd. The velocity is not down. In fact, the last time I looked, it was like ninety-one point five, where it was like last year ninety-one point three. So it's not velocity. Uh, something else is going on. I don't think lately his breaking ball has been as good. That that sharp, whether you want to call it a knuckle curve or the thing that goes straight down, uh, in terms of getting hitters to be enticed by it. And now, is that the problem? I'm, I'm not good enough to know, but I just, the inability to pitch out of trouble is, uh, is alarming because a lot of times he go out there, say for the sixth or seventh. And he knew that this was probably his last inning and he was just pushed really hard to get through it. And now I'm sure mentally he's trying to do the same thing, but it's just not happening. Um, so I do think nonetheless that, Starting pitching is such a prized commodity, and he does have such a strong record, track record. If you're a contending team, and there's a lot of them out there, you could easily talk yourself into Bieber. Of course, I would have made, made immediately demand to see all the, the physical stuff, but
2: I still think there's a market for him, but clearly
0: not what there would have been in spring training.
2: Well, and the other thing I was going to mention, Terry, you know how quickly things can change. And the Guardians coming into the break have, instead of put, they've bumped him back Mm -hmm. even further from where he would have been coming out of the break in terms of his spot on the rotation, just to give him some shutdown time. And maybe maybe that's just what he needs. It's just like a nice week off to recharge, let the arm get, get a little bit of uh, energy back in it. And, and to, if he wants to mess with his mechanics a little bit, I, I remember you talked to him in spring training about all this, when something doesn't feel right to him, it, you're right. It, it just cycles around in his brain. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I gotta, I gotta tweak this. I gotta tweak this. He, he is, he is a te- a tactician. And this might be a good time for him, not only just to get some rest, but also to kind of fix any mechanical things that he might be feeling.
0: Yeah. So. Right. Or he's overthinking it too. That's another thing. I, I'm, I can't see into his head. I do believe though, David, um, oftentimes when a player goes through something like this, where um, free agencies are approaching a trade, they tend to react either really well or really poorly. I mean, they tend to grab it and go, you know, go for the dollars, go for the gusto, or they becomes an added burden on them. And so we're seeing right now for for uh, Shane, he seems to be just struggling with that. I mean, the I, thing, think right. the, I think you're right. I think you're right. And he go through. He's making nine million bucks. I'm just. That's one of those things that are, uh, where if you're a player, if you could get yourself to that point, say, wait a minute, I'm making nine million dollars. Just relax. Whatever I get, I'm already set. That doesn't mean you take a, you know, your contract is up to a player. Do you want to be like Jose and take a, you know, a team friendly contract and stay where, where you are, where you're comfortable? Or do you want to be like a lot of other players, you know, Lindor, and many others. I want to, uh, I want a bigger market. I want to go for what I can get. And a lot of times the type of agent you hire and your discussions with him will lead you in one direction or the other because you pick them. I mean, for, I even, it's a very small scale, David, but I went through, two literary agents till I found the uh, person I'm with now. And I've been, she's represented me for like 35 years because I had an agent uh, early on. It was kind of like a, a Scott Boros of um, we're going to get big money projects and I'm going to pick them for you and you're going to be, you know, great. The problem is the stuff he wanted me to do. I didn't want to do. And because I, I really was sort of more of a, a parochial local writer, whereas now the agent I have is kind of like uh, Jose's agent, you know, we talk about what I'm going to do. And then I tell her, go sit down, make the best deal you can.
2: I hear you were a tough, a tough negotiator in uh, arbitration, Terry, back in yeah. the
0: day.
2: <laughs> when your arbitration came up, you used to hold out. You held, you wouldn't oh, write it Yeah, anymore, really, so. well, yeah, I'm not, yeah,
0: paid by the <laughs> word. But I, but the only reason I mentioned that is not there. It's just that I hate, it's only a glimpse of that world, but I was there. And you do make choices, You really do, and so then sometimes the burden you make, I remember taking one uh, project a long time ago simply for the money, and it was awful, and it taught me something, but it was an awful thing to do, Uh, and I realized I, I didn't, all the wrong reasons, so hopefully Shane will take some deep breaths, as you said, look at whatever video. And maybe his arm is just tired, and he just need a little time off, and he'll he'll end up pitching well. They do need him to pitch well, regardless of whether they trade him or not.
2: Definitely. And real quick before we move on, Terry, like we think of these guys and they're making nine million or whatever, but they're people, and yes. not, not knowing where you're going to be playing if it's going to be a contender. I oh my god, am I going to have to move? Mm-hmm. Like you know, if you have friends and, and girlfriends and what, whatever else you have going on that all the uncertainty of all that is not easy on anybody, regardless of how much money you're making. So and also, we'll see. We'll see. And they,
0: and they beat themselves up, especially something like Shane when he's not pitching well,
2: he really does. Um, well, we'll see where we're at in a couple weeks weeks. There might be a different Shane Bieber on the or There might be the same one and we'll see what the trade value is if they decide to make the move. So uh, Terry, we should probably. I, I think we want to look at some things that are going to be different in the second half, mm-hmm. quote unquote, of the season, and the Nailers, uh, with Bo being pretty much the full time catcher back there. What do you think of the Nailer brothers so far, and what are you expecting for them in the second half of the season?
0: I think I think Josh is the MVP of the first half. By the way, I would agree. You know, I, I maybe we could take Jose for granted, but just Josh is. Ascension helped Jose, and then all of a sudden Jose started hitting like Jose can because they have to pitch him some and and Naylor is a RBI machine. Josh, and as for Bo, I'm intrigued. I've been intrigued from when I saw him in spring training a while ago. He's a, he's an athletic catcher, and at least now you just don't have this grim feeling like when Zanino was there.
2: I've been really – you asked me, I think, twice over the mm-hmm. last few weeks what I thought of his defensive ability. I, I, I keep thinking about Evan Mobley and, yeah. and the fundamental way he plays the game and the footwork, and even for a guy who's in his rookie year, I mean, Bone Naylor, that relay I – mean, we had a story that Paul Hoynes wrote over the weekend. Terry Francona, he never answers when you ask him, like, oh, is that the best this, that, or the other you've ever seen? But there was that relay on Saturday night that went from Miles Straw to Andres Jimenez – down to Bo Naylor and Bo Naylor positioned himself perfectly on that play out in front of the plate. So we wouldn't get called on the stupid uh, blocking the plate stuff and had a beautiful sweep tag. And I'm like, wow, this guy's a rookie. And look at, look at where he was. He was ready for the ball. He caught it on a short hop. And aside from blocking pitches, like those are little things. I think you're right, Terry, that make, make a team confident in who's back there every night. Defensively. And he's,
0: and he's not striking off 40% of the time.
2: And when Z- Z- Zanito was
0: going up there, it was just so hard to watch because he had a good first two weeks, and then that was it. Whereas now, I think we could say um, Bode had a tough first couple weeks, but there's a lot more coming. And so, all right, they're going to try to do it the hard way with a bunch of rookies in the rotation, a rookie catcher. But it just seems like the the, the – the Guardians are always trying to do it the hard way anyway. This is, this is always something or other that's a challenge for them. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with them. And I think he's going to hit, maybe not this year as much, but uh, at some points because he he hit 25 home runs and, and like 500 bats at AAA over two years.
2: So something to see how that develops in the second half in terms of things that are going to be different than the first half and maybe help them push out. Ahead of 500, that might be one if Bo Naylor starts putting it together. But before we move on from the Naylor's, Terry, I did want to mention Miles Naylor got drafted 39th by the A's uh, this week. And this isn't like the right comparison yet, but I I mean, getting the Naylor family, having one person in your family make the major leagues is like an amazingly tough thing. The -hmm. Naylor family, they could potentially, if Miles Naylor makes it to the majors, they could have three kids in the major leagues. And I started thinking, like, this could be the major league version of, like, the Sutter brothers in hockey or the the ball family in the NBA. Like, th- it's pretty amazing when you think about it. To have two guys that are playing in the majors at the same time and a third one who might be down the road. It's, it's something else. I don't think you can overlook that. So I just want to so, throw that out there.
0: No, and especially when you take into consideration. Now, hockey has a minor league system, too, that you have to fight through. But uh, the NBA and the NFL do not. You know, I, had a, I have a, a column up this morning of being tomorrow's point D, or about the major league draft, just how difficult it is. Actually, I was surprised now that from 2005 to 15, this uh, research company looked at it, 26% of the players actually at least appeared in a big league game. There's still a, there's still a three, three 75% fail rate. Now, when you start talking about how many of them actually played three or four years, you're down to like, you know, 12% or it, it really drops. So if he actually makes it, that means three guys in a row will defy the three out of four don't make it. Ah, it's just right there. And they have to – you really do kind of have to fight your way through the minors. I mean, Bo Naylor was a first-round pick in 2018, and it took him until now to get up here. And so it is really difficult. By the way, when you look at – it's like 70 – like 70-some percent, no, excuse me, 68% of first-round picks actually play in the big leagues at some point. You think it it should be higher because I'll tell you, they'll try to shove those guys up. They threw millions of dollars at them and all this. They want to see if, make sure that number one pick can make it. Uh, And then if you're below the 10th round and below, it's like 8% or 9%. It really, it it drops off the, the cliff of players who do make it. And then on top of it, David, when you take in consideration about 85% of big league players go back to the minors at least once, um, when they talk about baseball being a game of failure, and they usually mean that the best hitters make it out 70% of the time, I'll argue it's just when you're talking about uh, 75% of the players who sign never see the big leagues, and then you're talking about... uh, 85% 85% go back to the who do make it end up going back to the minors at least once uh, failure hangs all over it. Yeah. You know, I guess in the NFL, you can say you can get, you get caught by this team or that team. But um, I remember Terry Francona, we, he actually was a discussion about Michael Jordan. Cause he had managed Michael Jordan in the minors. And he was saying the fact that Jordan at the age of whatever was 32, when he went to play double a baseball in the Southern league is tough. It's a, it's, it's a rough league, um, and the fact that Michael hit 220 or whatever, he thought it was pretty amazing for a guy who hadn't played since, like, Little League. He wasn't a high school baseball star, and he said he really thought if Michael got 1,200 to 1,500 at-bats, he would have played some in the big leagues, but he said it takes that many, at least 1,000 at-bats and preferably closer to 1,500 for a player to be big-league ready.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned that in your column, Terry, when the when the when Cleveland would bring their prospects down after the draft to meet the uh the media, it would be like, Nice to meet you, we'll see you in four years. Yeah.
0: I mean that was literally <laughs> a quote that one of the top uh Indians people in the old days said to me when they had Justice Sheffield and Bobby Bradley there. I remember these two high school kids came in. It was the same year Zimmer was drafted. They had one press conference for him the day before, then he had these two kids. And he goes, Well, if all goes well, we'll see him in four years. And, uh, sort of, well, never did see Sheffield. He ended up getting traded and he's now in AAA with an ERA over eight and Bobby Bradley's out of baseball.
2: Hard to believe considering where things were a couple of years ago. So, all right, Terry, we've got to move on, but real quick, uh, the Oscar watch still continues <laughs> and we'll see if they decide to make a move, um, coming out of the all-star break in terms of bringing him up to give them some pop in the outfield. I don't know what else is there to say, right? <laughs>
0: I'm I'm almost tired of the subject. It's kinda like the when will the we have when will the Zanito leave and then we have when will uh Oscar get uh, get released. Bring SpongeBob back.
2: <laughs> SpongeBob held hostage. It'd be like yes, the old days
0: on the news. Yeah, when, the, when they used to have that you know day eighty eight. <laughs>
2: That's right.
0: I mean I, he deserved to go down, unlike some fans. I didn't mind him going down. He needed to play all the all the time. And he has kind of a, a timing swing I and mean, he needed to just have some success and get going. But we're at that point. It's time to bring him back. Cleveland needs SpongeBob.
2: <laughs> There's a T-shirt for next week, Terry. Yeah. We'll get that. We'll get that going. And I, I, just real quick, I, the Guardians drafted uh, Ralphie Velasquez, a catcher first baseman f- from Huntington Beach High School in California, this week in the draft. And it, There's a Baseball America scouting report. It says he has an enticing mix of hitting ability and power. He has a tight, powerful left-handed stroke. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. But then when you look at all the other players they drafted, almost every position player is like, oh, doesn't really hit for power. Makes a lot of content. Doesn't hit for power. Doesn't hit for power. The whole rest of the way down. And I just was thinking, geez, all right, well, it's up to Ralphie to see if he can – bring some pops to, to the minor league system here the next few years. But uh, who knows? I just, I was very surprised with the lack of power that they sought out in this draft from the scouting reports. Were you?
0: I I give up on the draft. I'm serious. <laughs> I only have <laughs> one opinion on the draft and that is we've mentioned, I believe this before. I hate high school pitchers in the first two rounds. Of course they took one. Um, and what's the kid's name? Colmley. I think it is. Uh, yep. that took, and Alex, they all, Alex they, all have, they all have ERAs of like one zero point one nine, and they've struck out 12,000 guys in four innings and the radar gun just lights up the night. And meanwhile, then they'll, you know, this guy will end up having a and John or whatever. I just mean in general, the high school pitcher, um, Daniel Espino was the latest. He's had all kinds of, 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 arm problems. There's a guy that many fans uh, probably never heard of Lenny Torres, who was a real high pick for them. Um, And uh, he's down with a six ERA in um, Lake County. Meanwhile, they'll take some guy in the fourth or fifth round and uh, he'll end up being Shane Beaver, Tanner Bybee. I was looking at baseball America. I didn't write this. The baseball America put a thing out after the 21 draft and like, Looking at Cleveland's draft and different things, like Gavin Williams has strong arm in this, and this guy Fox, who they drafted as really quick. There's like five or six guys mentioned there. Most big league ready pitcher? How about this? His name is Tommy Mace from Florida, who's, by the way, at Akron. Uh, So not a word about Tanner Bybee. Zero.
2: As you wrote in your headline today in your column, uh, when it comes to the Major League Baseball draft, Terry, good luck. I think good, good luck in figuring out because it it is a crapshoot in a yeah. lot of ways. So, all right, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, I want to get your thoughts on Sam Merrill of the Cavs in the summer league. It is just summer league, but it's still interesting. And I wasn't sure if you saw Victor Wembanyama. I want to see what you thought about him. And we'll also talk some Browns, and um, we're going to talk some Teddy Roosevelt at the end of the podcast. So we'll be right back on Terry's talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. We are going to get into some Cavaliers here. The Cavs are unstoppable at Summer League in Las Vegas. Terry, 3-0 and so far. I guess the story so far has been Sam Merrill. Uh, guard brought up late last season to the to the Cavs. Outside shooting. Um, had a really nice game on Monday night as they went 3-0, 27 points. I think he was 9 of 13 from the field, and he made 8 of 11 three-pointers in 21 minutes. I guess he's been the story so far, right, Terry? Right? What did you think of what you've seen of him so far? And, and Cavs need shooting. Might he figure into the mix, I guess, is the next question.
0: Pretty much anybody that could make some outside shots three-pointers uh, will find a role in the NBA. I mean, Max Struz, who is now worth $63 million, was undrafted out of DePaul, and then he was picked up by the Celtics and cut. He was picked up by the Bulls, played in a few games, and was cut. He then went to Miami and kind of languored, uh, sort of did some G League stuff and all that before you know, establishing himself there. Why? Because he played hard and made three-pointers. That's what he did. Sam Merrill can do the same. Uh, Danny Green was a player that the Cavs drafted, actually, in the second round of North Carolina. Had him for a couple of years, let him go. He went to somewhere, and then he went to San Antonio, and he bounced back and forth with the G League with them. And then the next thing you know, his shooting and that, he, he developed some other stuff. He played like 15 years. Um, so NBA champion
2: during that the time. NBA
0: title, yes. Yep. And you know, he was here. Unfortunately, that ACL in his knee was not healed. Um, so whether you're talking about Sam Merrill, or you know, the the Cavs are hoping Monty um, Bates can develop into a three-point shooter. Whoever that person is can find a role. But he's also got to be, you know, at least reasonably athletic and and do something besides just stand there and make stationary threes. And Merrill, I thought, has a little bit of athleticism. So, you know, it's intriguing. They need anybody off the bench that could score because I think their bench scoring ranked 27th
2: or something in the NBA. was not good. And then speaking of Imani Bates, their number 49 overall pick, uh, you think of early, what do you have early impressions on him so far?
0: Well, his first game, he must have still thought he was in high school or something. He jacked up 13 threes, and uh, the nervousness came out. The last game, he played uh, far more solid. Um, he's, a, he's a streak shooter. I'm trying to uh, kind of put my preconceived notions behind me because you know I was against it, and I just thought he was kind of a Aau prep creation. Um, it is a weird looking shot that he has, but of course the question is, does it go in or not? Uh, now the nice thing is if he could keep developing that, and he does have some athleticism. He's not super athletic, but he has some, uh, and he could be very valuable if he would just be that kind of stretch four guy to make long long shots and grab some rebounds. So. Um, it's really, it's up to him. I'll tell you this. They want him to make it. They're invested in him. And so the opportunities there, the player that I've liked and I liked from starting when I saw him at the end of last season is Isaiah Mobley, Uh, because he, he's got a real chance to have a role because he's about six, nine. He's, he's strong. He knows the Mobley family knows how to play position defense. And um, his three point shooting is not bad. So, Uh, let's see because they're they're looking for another big guy they brought in what's this guy Jones that they brought in and but he's just he's a marginal big man they they probably would like to have him and have somebody else uh,
2: who's better too yeah Damian Jones um you know Terry it's It's hard. I mean, you got to cut these guys some slack. I mean, Victor wimben he went out there in his first summer league game and afterward they asked him what he thought and he's like, I had no idea what I was doing out there. And I kind of felt that way about Bates in that first game, just Mm -hmm. like he, he wouldn't go into the paint like for the first half. And then he finally went in there and he, he blocked a shot, I think. And you can just see that from the first to the second game, like for both of those guys, I'm not comparing them, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. you're drafted, they throw you out to Las Vegas, you're you're in an NBA game, <laughs> Summer League, and it's just, it, it's a little disconcerting, and I think the second game, we just saw them both more at ease, and, um, but, so, what did you think of Victor Wembenyama? The Spurs are not going to have him play the rest of Summer League, they're just going to have, they just had him play the first two games, but the, you know, generational prospect who comes out what did you think of what you saw of him so far
0: it's probably like if you saw ralph samson at the age of 19 you know because i never did i saw ralph play some in college and then a lot in the nba he's a a gifted strange player and gifted because he handles the ball well passes it well for seven foot four strange because he's not one that's going to go down the block um Although he has shown a little bit of hook, hook shot, and some footwork, but it, it's just odd. I know this much, and I think he's better at this already than if I remember Samson. He has really good timing blocking shots. Uh, that eight-foot wingspan surprises players, and I saw it in the NBA. Whether you're talking about Mark Eaton or Manute Bol, these really tall guys, they these players would challenge him or just think he really wouldn't get it, but. You know, it's kind of a law of of height.
2: When your wingspan is eight feet, um, you can really get to a lot of balls. And I mean, he he's blocking. He's been blocking over the last couple of years. Step back jumpers. Yeah. <laughs> and guys are like, how did he block that? It was a step back. I deliberately step back to avoid him, and he still gets there. So he's
0: learned to go straight up most of the time too. That's what I've noticed, as opposed to
2: you know trying to
0: to uh, do that. So I'm intrigued. But I just remember, it. I mean, Samson had a great career, but they we're always trying to figure out what's best for Ralph. Now, he's in with Popovich, with a uh, coach who's had success with, Tim Duncan and and uh, David Robinson. And he's in a good market for him, too, because it's not going to be all about uh, women. Yeah, now, San Antonio, yeah, the Spurs are the elite and the royalty there, but it's a small town given um, – NBA stature. And that's good for him. So, I mean, I don't think you can see Britney Spears just rushing to get down to San Antonio. <laughs> and I happen to like San Antonio you know, for all the reasons I just said, it's not a place Britney Spears would want to go. So uh, that, I think that will help him. And I, I feel bad for him in one regard is when you are that tall, you really stand out. You can't go anywhere.
2: There's no hiding. Yeah,
0: it's great yeah, that, on the basketball Britney Spears record. thing was so crazy. Yeah, I know.
2: She went up and tapped him on the shoulder. She just wanted to say hi and wish him best of luck. And all of a sudden, the security people are like, they didn't recognize who she was, and it was almost yeah. like a they they knocked her down. And I, boy, it, it sounded crazy. Her glasses sounded, got knocked
0: off. Yeah. yeah it's just,
2: but that's it, what it's like. It's like you're seven four. You cannot be inconspicuous, like you said.
0: I mean, life is really um, is really hard. I remember one time on just a. He's a former NBA player, and I don't want to mention the name because it was unfair, but he's a huge guy. And um, he went out to eat, sat on a chair, and the chair started to break at the restaurant. You know, it's like – and he's all embarrassed. And it's like – just like in football, like you're a massive lineman it works great on the field, and real life is difficult. So these people that – you know, that 1% of genetics and growth – I don't envy. I never desire to be seven feet or six eight even, uh, because I just have been around enough big people to know that uh, it 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 comes with a lot of strange
2: challenges. How tall are you, Terry? Uh, Five foot two. Yeah, (laughs)
0: five foot two.
2: I'm five ten, but I play like I'm six three. Yeah,
0: that's right. You know, then again, he's not very big, but I'm really slow.
2: Hey, before we move on, you mentioned Imani Bates' uh, shooting motion, and mm-hmm. I, th- this is like an old-school comparison, and, and you said basically if it goes in, who cares how you shoot. But it, his his shot makes me think of Jamal Wilkes, the old Laker from mm-hmm. back in the Magic era. He had kind of a, a little hitch in his shot, but he made a lot, and I don't know, I just thought it was kind of an interesting comparison, so I yeah. thought I'd throw it out yeah, I know you're an old-school basketball yeah, guy. Yeah, from
0: but... there. Of course, all those guys uh, played for um... – at UCLA, and with Coach Wooden, they would run these same drills where you go up and down and bank shots, or in twelve foot bank shots, fifteen foot bank shots, you know, on the fast break. And and Wooden, who was a very strict fundamentalist, never touched Wilkes' shot because it went in. But also, Wilkes was a very fundamental player. And I do think that that is a thing that you will have to see. Will is Amani willing to become a really good fundamental player? defensively and do these other things because um, he's not like one of these wildly athletic players who could play through a ton of mistakes. And so I'm curious, but the nice thing is so far, he seems to be buying into what they want him to do. And I like the fact that NBA now is like, when I covered it, there was no G league. Um, They had a minor league, that was kind of a bunch of independent teams, they had teams in Rapid City or whatever, and I forgot what they called it back then. Um, and But it, it was, there was no real development. Guys went down there to try to score as many points as they could so that some NBA team would pick them up.
2: Totally different now. So, All right, well, the Cavs will be taking some vacation here as soon as Summer League is over, and then we'll be heading into the fall for training camp. And uh, boy, it'll, it'll be here before we know it. So, all right, Terry, the Browns open training camp a week from Saturday, and they're going to be starting down at the Greenbrier in West Virginia for the first week. And we thought we'd talk about a reason that you feel good about the Browns going into the training camp and a reason to worry. Do you want to do the reason to feel good first?
0: No, I want you to do it first.
2: (laughs) Reason to feel good about the Browns. All right. You have talked about this in mini camp throwing against air. Everything I see, Of Deshaun Watson this offseason he looks like he is really spinning it man like even just thrown to one receiver against nobody the ball looks really good and I'm not trying to like get Browns fans too excited but that's a good sign is having a quarterback who can put the ball where he wants and is spinning it and it's July I think that's a reason to feel good and I think he's going to be much 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 better going into this season so what's your reason to feel good
0: I think they addressed the problems on defense. Not that they're going to have a super defense, but you have an experienced defensive coordinator. They went out and added beef in the middle of the line. Um, Schwartz has had a lot of success, a bigger lineman. he clearly had an impact in terms of who they were drafting. Um, And he has got the personality because with um, Kevin being so concerned about getting Watson right in the offense, you need the coordinator as the head coach of the defense. And I, I believe he'll, he'll be, he'll fit that role. Um, And I just, I just feel real good about that. I, I did. Hopefully there'll be a lot fewer blown coverages. I think they'll do better with their linebackers. Another thing about the linebackers, this is a real test because uh, some of the Browns internally thought that Joe Woods just didn't, get the best out of the linebackers, didn't use them right. Not that they were great, but this, that he didn't maximize it at all. Um, we'll see what Schwartz does with this combination of linebackers and safety. So that's my reason to feel good about it, that uh, uh, the defense shouldn't be as mistake prone as it was in the past.
2: Well, I'm going to build off that, Terry, with why I think Browns fans should worry. And I I remember before last season, I was talking to Lance Risland, who is our film Uh, correspondent. And he broke this down at a preseason event. We did. He said, look at the way teams are just mashing the ball Mm -hmm. straight at the Browns. They're not running any, any wide zone. They're just going power straight at them, man-on-man blocking. And that he said, this front seven is not built to stop this. And what did we see over and over and over teams just running right straight at them. I just think even with the reinforcements they brought in on the defensive line, like, you know how it is, somebody's going to get an ankle Mm -hmm. or, they're just – the linebackers, Anthony Walker's coming off that serious injury. It, that front seven, I just – I want to see if they can hold it together and, and if they can stop those kind of just straight-ahead power running plays. And I, I until I see that, I think Browns fans should be worried about that front seven. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with that. What's your biggest worry well, in terms of – Well, and
0: Taki Taki also is coming off an ACL. True, yeah. He ended up being their really their best run defender last year. So that's that's legit. The same reason that I feel overall about it, you know, they you poke weaknesses in it. Now, this is more um, ethereal. I did that just to show you I you know the word, which means vague. This thing, the Browns is the Browns is the Browns. Remember, who is that? Juju Schuster, I think, said that about them. Yep,
2: Juju Smith-Schuster the Steelers, yeah,
0: right? Yeah, so that is really, when you're talking about a franchise that has not had two winning seasons in a row since 89 and 90 – and has had only one, two, a three winning season since they came back in '89. There is hanging over the team, even though all the faces have changed and the coaches have changed, the here we go again syndrome. And I look at in their first couple of games, what they got Cincinnati, they got Pittsburgh, and Baltimore, aren't they? In the first three of the first four?
2: Yeah, I believe so. Yep.
0: So that could create a here we go again syndrome for them. And that bothers me because I don't know how mentally tough they are.
2: So the first four games, Terry, home against the Bengals at Pittsburgh, home against Tennessee, home against Baltimore. Those are the first four and then the bye. Yeah. So three of them at home.
0: Boy, and the other thing, you don't want to go to that bye at one and three because nobody is as good as thinking the sky is falling, the world is ending, and let's eat dirt and die like Browns fans because they've been through so much.
2: They've been trained to feel that
0: way. So. <laughs> yes, they have.
2: All right, Terry, so as I mentioned, training camp starts on July 22nd, which is a week from Saturday, and then halfway through, the Browns will go to Philly for a couple of joint practices against the Eagles, which will really be revealing before that preseason game they play in Philly. So two kind of benchmark moments to keep an eye on there. So, All right, Terry, it is book time. And I know that you wanted to talk about a new book about Teddy Roosevelt, and I actually have something to, to contribute to this one. Okay. I haven't read this book, but you you wanted to get into this new, uh, it, I think it's called The Old Lion, about yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. Why yeah. don't you G- talk about that? Yeah, the
0: nice thing, it's a novel, because I, I really think that one of the best ways to um, get a feel for history is to either get really well-written history, David McCullough is one that does that, or people who are very good at, Historical novels. Jeff Shahara, uh, Michael Shahara is the one. His father, who wrote the Killer Angels. Jeff has written tons of uh, novels. I think I've actually read them all. It's almost like twenty of them. But usually, it's on World War One or uh, a certain slice of the Civil War. But this time, he decided to do something different. He tried to do a uh, a novelistic version of the life of Teddy Roosevelt. And there it's a remarkable story to me of uh, uh, this kind of young guy from Oyster Bay, New York with glasses and he was not very athletic or whatever. And was kind of always trying to prove himself, whether he went out to the North Dakota Badlands to become a uh, cowboy. And I've hiked part of the Badlands where he was, that's rough country. It's correctly called the Badlands and it's, It's beautiful and stark and scary all at once. Um, There's a line I wish I had written that is by another novelist named uh, Daniel O'Brien. He's a South Dakota novelist and he's written some historical novels. But O'Brien wrote, when you're in a place like the Badlands, he says, you feel like everybody can see you, only nobody's looking. Because <laughs> you're wide out you the wide open spaces. It's like you just feel like you, you could see for miles. They could see you for miles, but there's nobody there. And then, of course, uh, Roosevelt also uh, led the infamous charge of San Juan Hill. Um, it's, a, it's, it's just a fascinating story of um, a unique character. And now, now, of course, he'd be politically incorrect and everybody
2: would hate him. But um, I love the book and it's worth your while. So interestingly enough, Terry, I read a I, several years ago. I got uh, the, I think it was Theodore Roosevelt, a biography by Henry Pringle, okay. and I, I read it right away. And you mentioned how he was kind of frail. Is it, he had asthma, if I mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. And you think of Teddy Roosevelt standing on the top of the hill, blustering, you know, pounding his chest, yeah. and and was the tough guy who. who basically broke down all the monopolies back during his Mm. time in office and he it started for him as this kind of frail you know glasses wearing kid with asthma who was not very strong but he basically went outside his parents said get outside and play and get some fresh air for your asthma and he basically built himself into somebody who was really rugged and and robust just he he would not stop until he became more physically fit and and more virile and able to have better stamina. And that, I think that really informed him as a guy and as a politician where he wasn't going to back down from these huge, you know, power barons back in the day. Mm -hmm. And it it all started, I, to me, that connection really started because nature, mother nature was against him and he wouldn't take it. And he was going to, he was going to impose his will on mother nature. And, and he kind of approached politics the same way. He's just a fascinating guy. And I think he's got to be one of our greatest presidents on without a doubt.
0: I do, but I'm sure uh, there'll be other people cast doubts on everybody right now. You know, I, I'm trying to like, say, don't get me going on our view of history. I want to in fact, when my were calm, I want to start to say so many people have their knowledge of history. would not fit into a thimble, but then I realized they wouldn't know what a thimble was. So I didn't <laughs> use it. Uh, and, but it's, it's very true. And, and we, we, have to keep in mind that these women and men from the past—they um, are people, and they're products of their age, and they're flawed. And then the same way, we should judge them as we would want to be judged, you know, as Jesus would say. And uh, we often just try to impose, you know, 2023 values on some guy from 1914, and or some person from 1861. It, it's just crazy, but. Pick it up. It's an easy read. And also, uh, you'll learn a lot about history. And I think all uh, a guy just trying to not just prove himself, but find himself in, in a way of these different physical things he did was a way of building confidence.
2: And it sounds like a totally different approach than just a straight biography, which makes it even yes. better read. So excellent. All right. Well, thanks for that, Terry. I think um, I think that's all we got today. You got anything else you want to bring up? That is it. All right. So I do want to give another plug real quick. July 25th, which is a Tuesday, 6 p.m. at the Ritter Library in Vermilion. You can sign up on the Ritter Library website. Oh, and I almost forgot. Uh, don't forget, you can sign up for Terry's free newsletter, which comes out every Monday. You can get everything that's Terry, that Terry has written in a given week, including his Faith in You column, which comes out every Saturday online, every Sunday in The Plain Dealer. And you can sign up for that at cleveland.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next week on Terry's Talking.